Today's reading is from Luke 24, verses 21 through 35. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village, to where they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you very much for reading that wonderful passage of Scripture this morning. Good morning, everyone. It's great delight for me to be here with you. Would you um, um, like to pray with me as we begin our sermon together? Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you that we are here in your name with different feelings and emotions and desires. Lord, as a congregation and as a community here at Christ Presbyterian, both at the academy and the church, we have experienced many questions surrounding the departure of two beloved ones, seventh grader Matthew Williams and a beloved teacher, Mr. Ben Ellis. And as many will have questions about that, shedding tears, help us to wrap our hearts and lives around them in support at this time so that through this, we may show ourselves to be a community not led by passions and desires of our own, but the desires of the triune God found in the Holy Scriptures. And maybe that happen even as we do so now in your reading and preaching of the word and listening of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning once again, and uh, this is the second sermon in the series of our 20-year vision. And you, I trust, have your bulletins in front of you or on the screen. We'll see this kind of a passage or a statement that really grounds our identity together as uh, people in Christ's press, both visitors but also members and families who sojourn here with us. 
And as it says right there, is it okay if we read that together? Because I think that will help us to really kind of get a sense of what it is that we're trying to accomplish as family in Jesus. Let's read it. As a family united in Christ and led by Scripture, we at Christ Presbyterian Church exist as partakers in a movement of God's kingdom that offers spiritual life, public faith, mercy and justice, and the integration of faith and work to the people, communities, institutions, and churches of greater Nashville and through Nashville to the world. All in. That's what it says, right? Um, family united in Christ and led by Scripture. Think of those three words, led by Scripture. So if you were stranded in, you know, we hear these things a lot, you know, if you're stranded on an island and you could only take one book with you, what book would that be? Right? Just one book that you could choose from. What would that be? For some people, it could be Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss. For others, it could be Lord of the Rings by J.R.R.R.R.R. Tolkien. Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings might be one. For yet others, it could be Shakespeare's Macbeth, Hamlet, or The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. You see, the list could go on and on. For me, there's a book called Fear and Trembling, written by this person from Denmark, Soren Kierkegaard, that remained for me for a long time my favorite book because after I became a Christian as a junior in college, that book more than any other book except for the Bible has taught me about the true nature of the Christian faith. As he talked in powerful ways about the test of faith that came upon Abraham when he was asked to sacrifice his one and only beloved son, Isaac, simply because God said so. So we all have our favorites. What about the Bible? Would that be on your list of the book to take with you to a deserted island? If so, that's great. If not, why not? Allow me to say something that hopefully will kind of jolt you awake as we begin this sermon together. You ready for this? It is this. There's been a silent and strange death of the Bible in Western Christianity. We have too much. Too great an abundance, absolutely no shortage of the printed and online Bibles nowadays. I say it's a silent death because most people have no idea that it is even happening. I'm sure you may be surprised. What? What is he talking about? It is also strange because we have way too many of these Bibles. You go to Barnes & Noble stores or go to Amazon.com and you find a dizzying variety of Bibles. There's a teenage study Bible, both in black cover or pink cover, and I think that's kind of designed to elicit desires from different genders of stu students. Recovering Addicts Study Bible, Women's Bible, Soldier's Bible, Hunter's Bible. It covers every conceivable category of the human existence and identity. Did you know, friends, that Jesus quite probably did not have a personal copy of the Hebrew Bible? Did you know that? Jesus who was here among us some 2,000 years ago, he himself did not have a copy or a scroll of the Torah. Before the year 1500, over 99% of Christians did not have their own Bibles at home. Now let me ask you, how many copies of the Bible do you have at home? I bet you at least five. I bet you on your phone and on your computer or everywhere, you could take your Bible with you wherever you go. 
right? So when I teach here or elsewhere, I say, if you have your Bibles, please open it up or open your phone. Let's turn to it, right? Because some people don't carry physical Bibles any longer. We just carry our telephones or iPhones or whatever they are. But before 1500, the vast, vast, vast majority of Christians had no access to the Bible, so much so that even after the Bible was made, so um, the Bible was printed, um, you know, as uh, Pastor David read for us from the Book of Common Prayer, you know that they were more in abundance than the Bibles for a little while. So if you went to a church in 1600, let's say, in France or in England, did you know that the Bible would be here and they would be chained to the lectern? And no access to the Bible when you're at home. So you would really kind of desire to listen to it when you came to church. And then that soon began to change as print media became much more popularly and prevalently available. So thanks to persons like Johannes Gutenberg, print press brought about a major communication revolution. You may or may not have heard of Johannes Gutenberg, but I'm sure you have heard of this guy named Tim Berners-Lee. You know who that is? He's the inventor of the World Wide Web. The internet, we say. So as a result of Gutenberg and Berners-Lee's revolution, we have far greater access to the Bible, but so often we read about the Bible rather than the Bible itself, right? And the reading of the Bible itself, there's been a great decline. For many churches, the devotion to the Bible as a text to be studied as a community does not seem to be a popular option. I realize that Christ Pres is an exception, and there's multiple others, but it seems that there's a sort of a decline of the study of the Bible. We read about the Bible, or we kind of many in the evangelical churches, it is often more focused on reading about the Bible by reading popular Christian commentators or authors than the Bible itself. Of course, the exception would be Scott Saul's new book, Befriend, and that would be great. So I just had to say that because I had it in my manuscript, and I said there was an advertisement about Scott's new book, Befriend, so I just wanted to. So we've just begun our series on the vision statement of Christ's Presbyterian Church, a 20-year vision. What will be your guiding principles? And so we want to talk about this. What is your fundamental text of life? What is that go-to book or, you know, some kind of manual that you read and pour through when your life is in difficult situations or dilemmas or in a state of quandary or tragedy? What is our community's text that gives us a sense of identity and fuels all of our activities? That's the Bible. But what is the Bible? Well, it is as the Latin word scriptura, which means a text or writings, the Bible is scripture, we say, right? Or the playbook. So let's think about this. Friends, some of you have been in school plays before. Come to think of it, I've never been in a school play, so I've never, I was never given the script. But if you're in a school play, right? I know several of you have been. When you are kind of, when you join the school play, you're given a script. And what is a script? And as an actor or actress, what is your responsibility regarding the script? What you have to do is to make sure that you memorize your part so that you know what you're supposed to say and when to say it and how to say it with some kind of, you know, affective desire or whatever it is, that script is the guiding principle for the play. So in other words, for this play to fly well and flourish, you better memorize and really incarnate your lines from the script because it is your playbook. Some of you have played football or uh, have played it or are playing right now. I've never played football in school, but my son plays for his school team, so I've been going to watch the football games. 
And what I find really interesting is this. Uh, so for most plays, the quarterback comes to the sideline or near the sideline and has a little chat with the coach. And the coach tells the quarterback, I think, this is the play that I want you to run, right? And there's a brief communication, and the quarterback takes cues or orders from the playbook given by the coach, and he, along with nine other players, for the most part, right, sometimes 11 players, 12 players, tries to execute the play according to the way it's written in the playbook. So the Bible is our, our script, our playbook. So the divine playwright is the triune God who was eternally in love within God among the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I do think that it's very important to think about that. The identity of God is that God is the being who has eternally in, been in love. That the primary and fundamental identity of God between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is love. So the first John says, God is love. What was God doing before anything at all came to be, before there was anything, before when the category self, time, and space was created? God was in love. That means all that God is and all that God does is stemming from love. Furthermore, as God has created this universe, as God has involved himself in this redemptive history, and we as human creatures bearing the image of God, what we are and what we are meant to be and meant to do is to carry on that love of God in our kind of missional presence. In other words, the Bible is a script of love that testifies to the fact that since all that God is and all that God does from this holy and covenantal love, that love also defines who we are and what we do. Gregory Nyssa, a 4th century theologian from modern-day Turkey, or Richard of St. Victor, a medieval Christian from France, as well as Teresa of Avila, who lived in the 16th century Spain, all are all said that God's word, Scripture, cannot be understood apart from knowing that God is fundamentally triune, and at the core of this God's identity as a triune God is love. And that is very, very important for us to think about that. How do we know? Why, why, why are we loving beings? Because God is love. And then the scripture itself that we have, and there is an understandable seeming cacophony within the scripture. There will be passages, especially in the Old Testament, that you read and says, is this part of the Bible, part of Holy Scripture? But the overall message and the thrust from Genesis 1 to the very last chapter in the book of Revelation is amid much death and tears and pain, it shows that God is orchestrating all of our stories broken and fragmented though they may be, and they are, God's love is a driving engine of it all. In today's text we, that, that was read for us earlier, we see a wonderful picture in the story of Emmaus regarding the centrality, sufficiency, and beauty of Scripture. So there will be three points that I'd like for us to ponder through uh, our time together, and these points are very simple, tragedy, epiphany, and community. Tragedy, epiphany, and community. So let's then look at the first point, which is tragedy. This is a fabulous story that involves a follower of Jesus named Cleopas and his traveling companion, perhaps his wife or friend, and then Jesus. The three main characters in this story that we have read, and I want you to really kind of get involved. And, and this is what I always say whenever I speak. I want you to become empathetic readers of this text. 
Meaning this, get yourself in that storyline. Try to identify with no, no more than that. Get into that story and be Cleopas or his traveling companion. And then you're going to experience tragedy. Then you're going to experience epiphany. Then hopefully you'll experience community together throughout this conversation. This is one of the few resurrection accounts that does not deal focusedly or directly with the 12 disciples or 11 disciples. And if you were to look at verse 13 and following, you will see that they are walking away from Jerusalem, headed to this little village called Emmaus, about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And this is really a funny story because Jesus shows up and walks alongside of them, traveling incognito. He's not telling them who he is. And there's a real beauty to this story. So Cleopas and, and, and his traveling companion, they're really bummed out. They're really grief-stricken right now. And they're walking not toward Jerusalem, but away from Jerusalem. And then uh, it says something. And in verse 16, there's a very important verse there. Uh, they were walking with Jesus, but their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. So imagine this. You're, you, you have actually followed Jesus before. You've listened to his teaching before. And you're really, really in this tragic moment of loss. And you're walking with your friend. And the one that you've been listening to and following shows up. But you are not able to recognize him. That's what's going on. Right? And Jesus, the resurrected one, asks them this question. What are you all talking about? And the Cleopas looks to him and says, What? Are you only the visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have taken place there these days? Just saying, look, like you don't know what's going on. And then Jesus kind of ironically pretended not to know what's going on, and he asked kind of cheekily, he says, what things? And the, their answer was, well, it's about Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and before people. Our chief priests and rulers delivered him, and they have crucified him. Then they said in verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Let's stop there for a second, okay, friends? Let's think and let the words sink into your soul. Cleopas is truly depressed, dejected. And it says, we had hoped that he would be the one to deliver and redeem us, redeem Israel from the bondage and from the slavery of Roman occupation and Roman imperial occupation and colonial rule. Sense of tragedy, right? We had hoped that this guy would do it, but he's dead. And here's the irony. The guy, Cleopas, says, are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on? You know what the irony is? Jesus was the only one who knew what was going on. He knew exactly what's going on, but he pretends not to know. And so we find this. Think with me about this person, Cleopas. You know, they had this fervent hope and belief that perhaps this guy, this prophetic figure, was the one who was going to restore the kingdom to Israel, therefore to redeem the people of God who had been in bondage, slavery, and much sadness. In fact, they're hoping that with this messianic figure, everything sad was going to become untrue. You see? Tragedy. Can you see that? They're in the midst of tragedy. See, in a church like ours, a large congregation, we have multiple stories. Some are comedies, others are tragedies. And it really does behoove us to really be sensitive to and attuned to the realities that are happening around us. A seventh grader loses his life. A beloved Bible and Latin teacher loses his life. 
And for many of us, life almost makes sense. For yet others, life does not make sense at all. Like, I don't understand what is going on. Holy Spirit, we, you are welcome here, so sang so many students just a couple of weeks ago. The video that went viral, seen by people all over the world, quite literally. And that beloved teacher, not long after that visitation by the high school students, went home to be with the Lord. Why? Does that make sense? For some, it may make sense among our congregation. Yes, it makes sense. That was God's will. For some others, it makes no sense at all. Like, I don't understand it. And for some others, it almost makes sense. There's a diversity of experiences, shared experiences, that we have together here at Christ Press. Tragedy, this person, Cleopas, and his traveling companion, they are not in a good mood. They are grief-stricken. They are in tragic mode. Their beloved teacher is not there. He's dead. But they're lamenting the death, longing for the presence, living in confusion, and losing hope for national independence. But Cleopas, they don't, he doesn't stop there. He makes another tantalizing statement. Some of our women astounded us, he says. They were at the tomb early morning and encountered angels who told them that he was alive. Then they went to corroborate the women's testimony and found that the tomb was indeed empty. Now, do you think they got it and said, oh, yes, we know that he's alive? No, no, no. I think he's still confused. He's like, I know the empty tomb is there, but I don't know what that means. Cleopas is not therefore concluding automatically Jesus is risen. Hallelujah. No, no, no. I think they're genuinely confounded. You see, here is the thing. Resurrection of Jesus had objectively occurred already, right? There is an empty tomb. Jesus is risen. But subjectively and individually, Cleopas and his friends and the 11 disciples and the women who had followed Jesus, they're still grief-stricken and feeling God-forsaken. There are two levels of tragedy here for Cleopas and his friend that we see in the text. Tragedy number one is not getting the resurrection as an existential reality. They didn't understand. They're like, well, empty tomb is there, but we don't understand. They could not really understand what had happened and this, to be honest, I can fully sympathize with. Let me challenge you, friends. If you were Cleopas or his traveling companion, and you go to the empty tomb and you don't find Jesus there, would you understand what had just happened? No. I would have thought that robbery had occurred. And indeed, the Gospels tell us that some people thought that robbery had occurred. Like, some people came and stole our Lord's body. They were confused. So tragedy number one is confusion surrounding this resurrection. But tragedy number two is what I would call a hermeneutical one or problem with interpretation. Look at verse 25. This may surprise us. Verse 25, we hear Jesus saying, and what are his words? He says, oh foolish ones. He says, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And notice this. And beginning with, with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Did you hear that? See, if you've been a Christian a long time, you may take these things for granted, but I want you to listen as if it is your first time hearing it. Jesus is telling them everything about the identity of the Messiah. Jesus is interpreting. In fact, this is the very best Bible study that you could ever attend. 
I mean, this is like the best Bible study, better than Paige Benton Brown's Bible study or Tim Keller's. I you just, they're good. I know they're really great, by the way. But if you had to choose one Bible study ever to attend, you should go this one. And you know what? The, the funny thing is, it was an ambulatory Bible study. You were walking along. You weren't even sitting down. You couldn't even take notes. You couldn't even record a conversation. You were just walking along, and you weren't even aware of the fact that you were in a Bible study with the best teacher ever. You see what I'm saying? And this is what's going on. There's a hermeneutical tragedy. You see that while scriptures are pointing forward and backward to the incarnate Son of God, you can study and get degrees in it, but without that recognition of the resurrected Christ, it becomes a tragic endeavor. One of my favorite theologians of all time lives in Nashville, and his name is Michael Card. He's not only a theologian, but also a wonderful songwriter. His song, The Final Word, beautifully captures the essence of how the Bible that Jesus knew was a testament to divine love, and thus it can be best understood in light of the event of the incarnation. He writes, You and me, we use so many very clumsy words. The noise of what we often say is not worth being heard. When the Father's wisdom wanted to communicate His love, He spoke it in one final perfect word. He spoke the incarnation, and then so was born the Son. His final word was Jesus. He needed no other one. Spoke flesh and blood so He could bleed and make way divine. When God needed to speak God's final word, God spoke it in a person. But that person who was now traveling incognito was not recognized by Cleopas and his friend. He speaks about the fact that the Bible that he knew, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, was pointing forward to the advent of the one who is not going to be recognized until something else happens later on in the story. And that's the, that leads me to my second point, epiphany. Epiphany. So if you were to look up the word epiphany on Google or merriamwebster.com, it'll toss back, among others, two major definitions. One is about 6th of January being the traditional church calendar celebration of Epi epiphany as the festival of commemoration of the visit of the Magi, right? The visit of the Magi is epiphany. But the other one is a moment in which, this is Merriam-Webster, in which you suddenly see or understand something in a new or very clear way. Aha moment, right? Oh, I get it. Epiphany. And there is that epiphany that we see here in this text. And that's the second definition they will use for this sermon. Notice with me in verse 30. If you have your Bibles, please open your phones or open up your Bibles. And let's, read, let's see that. Are you ready for this awesome and even somewhat crazy story? See, they're about to get to Emmaus, and Jesus acted as if he was going further. First, he pretends not to know what's going on, and second, he pretends to be going further, and the disciples say, wait, 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 it's getting dark. Please come and have dinner with us. So he is invited as a guest, okay? He's invited as a guest to these two friends, and they're presumably going to a, a restaurant or an inn with some kind of dining facility. And then watch, notice in verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Right? What does that sound like? What does that remind you of, friends? What? The Lord's Supper. That's right. The Lord's Supper. And did you notice this too? He was a guest, yes. He was invited by these two people. And then what does he do? He comes and takes over as a host. The guest becomes host. Now, if you invite some people as guests and they take over as hosts, you don't like it, and I understand that. But Jesus comes to your house or to your life as a guest, let him take over as the host. 
Because he's going to show things in an epiphanous way so that our multiple tragedies, if not begin to make immediate sense, but will begin to make sense gradually in and through Jesus, the resurrected one, but before that, the crucified one. He begins to take over, and then he takes the bread, breaks it, and gives it to them, and guess what? This is the real kicker in verse 31. Find your Bibles and read it. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And then what else does it say? The next sentence. And he did what? He vanished from their sight. Whoa. Why would you do that, Jesus? I like to ask. If I'm Jesus, I would stick around just a little bit longer and says, now you see me, now you don't. <laughs> I mean, at least convince these disciples that they're not hallucinating. Right? They're not seeing things. They're not hearing things. Well, I guess you might say, well, I've heard things. But no, 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 this is it. And But he does this. He breaks the bread, and then by this divinely appointed moment, they're able to see Jesus for who he is, the resurrected Messiah. But then he disappears. Do you know why? Do you ever wonder why? You know what I mean? I mean, like, I don't get this. Why would you, I mean, Jesus, Lord, please stick around a little bit. You know, he's a kind of a rude guest, isn't he? You come to dinner, you break bread, and in the middle of it, you just disappear. He doesn't come back. Would you like to have a dinner guest like that? No, I wouldn't. First of all, he comes in, takes over as the host, prays, and just goes away. Doesn't eat the meal. That's Jesus for you. (laughs) But there's a reason behind it. Wonderful reason behind it, for which we ought to be thankful. Because what Cleopas and his traveling companion experienced, that is the absence, the physical absence of Jesus after he was recognized, we experience it the same way, my friends. Let me put it to you this way. The gospel writer Luke is dealing with this issue of absence and distance. Historical dis- dis- distance and physical absence. The worshipers of God through Jesus Christ in year 100 AD, as well as those of us here in 2016 AD, those among us who identify as followers of Jesus, you see, we're dealing with the same problem. There's a distance Jesus is not with us physically. If somebody comes along and says, I am Jesus right now, you should not believe that person. But Jesus is present. How is Jesus present? Jesus is present precisely through his absence. The physical absence of Jesus is experienced and felt more acutely, therefore powerfully communicates to us his real presence through what? The Eucharistic elements. What you're about to receive after the sermon is over, these elements powerfully and evocatively present to you the real Jesus who is in heaven, who is interceding for us even now. See, there will be no shred of doubt whatsoever, we might say, if you stuck around a little bit, but not so with the wisdom incarnate himself. Jesus is far more present to and with us in his physical absence than presence itself. And, you know, and then they talked about this holy heartburn after the fact. I want you to think about that. They were doing this Bible study, unplanned Bible study, walking along the way with this strange dude. And after they recognized him, you know what they talk about? They talk about this holy heartburn that they had experienced earlier. Look at verse 32. Were not our hearts burning within us while he walked, talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? 
Notice this. As a result of this eye-opening, they could recognize this Jesus, who's not physically present with them, but his body broken and blood shed would be memorialized in this powerful ritual meal that we see here, and ever since then will take on a new meaning. That the Passover meal, and, and interpreters have talked about this. Paul talks about Jesus as the Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. But in this tradition, what we see is an emergence of this Christian tradition that sees, that tries to deal with the absence of Jesus' physicality. They deal with it by saying, look, okay, Jesus is physically not here, but he's far more present to us in his absence than presence itself. Let me talk about it this way. You know, you miss someone. That person is not with you. You miss that someone so much because there is a separation. There is a gulf called death. You long for that person's presence. You really wish you were there or that that person was here with you right now. But if you're thinking about it, and, and, and think about this, if you have experienced something like that, you can think about it in a much more poignant way, right? As you're thinking about that person, that person is present to you in your memory and in your soul in ways that the presence itself would be a, a just, that doesn't even begin to compare. Of course you would desire the real presence, the physical presence. I understand that. But there are peoples whose physical absence evokes such a powerful presence in your heart, in your being. And what better way than to memorialize it in this meal? And that's the beginning of the Eucharistic tradition in Christianity. And Luke 24 is a pivotal chapter in doing that. Some of us older folks, including myself, might remember the movie, The Usual Suspects. Okay, I don't know some of you, how many of you remember, I've seen, okay, good. That, to me, is one of my, it's really a powerful kind of ending. It's just, and starring Kevin Spacey. It's about this enigmatic criminal record, a criminal named Kaiser Soze, right? Kevin Spacey, as it turns out, was Kaiser Soze. And he came up with this fictitious story of Soze by, what? Looking at the bulletin board in front of him and looking at Skokie, Illinois, and Kobayashi, and all of this, he concocts this wonderfully fabricated story of Kaiser Soze, when in fact it was himself. And the police detective, you know, by looking at the bulletin board after Kaiser Soze has just left, came to see that it all fit together in a completely fabricated way. And he drops the mug and runs out to catch Kevin Spacey by asking, where is that cripple? And then he was long gone. By standing back and looking at it, they were able to make sense of it. You see Cleopas and his friend, they're able to stand back and say, okay, just as our eyes are open, we now recall that holy heartburn we had. We now, we now realize, oh, that is all beginning to make sense. You see, I think that's the beauty of it. The epiphany leads then to my final point, community. Tragedy, epiphany, and final point of community. Verse 33 tells us that they got up and returned to the 11 disciples. And verse 35, they told the 11, they were saying, you know, I want to tell you about what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Did you just hear that? There's a two fundamental things we need in the life of the church. That is, the study of Scripture and reflection on Scripture and meditation of Scripture, as well as eating together, Right? Because they said they are the two modes through which we were able to discern and recognize Jesus. You know what? At the core of it all, Christianity is recognizing Jesus and basically representing Jesus to the world. 
If you say that I'm a follower of Jesus, that means, among other things, that you recognize Jesus, you meditate on Jesus, you have that union with Christ, a beautiful theological concept that I hope is more real than merely theological, that you are united with Jesus Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, what you are going to experience right here, up here in these five tables, is that you will experience the union with Christ by eating and drinking. And through these elements, what God, the Holy Spirit, does is lifts us up to the heavenlies. Where is Jesus? He is in heaven. But how is that communion going to happen? It is through the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who has raised Jesus from the dead. He will raise our hearts up so that we could see Jesus. Can you see Jesus? Yes, I can. How can I see him? Right here in these elements. And so the community element is there. What had just happened, happened on the road is talking about the best Bible study with Jesus. But studying the Bible without breaking of bread leads either to arid or dry scholasticism or spiritual theological one-offsmanship. I know more theology than you and things like this. Right? My theology is better than your theology. My church is better than your church, so forth and so on. Conversely, breaking of bread without scriptural reflection and engagement will render the entire experience of breaking of the bread devoid of transcendence, devoid of reference point, devoid of meaning, devoid of holiness. For all we're doing is eating, then why don't you just watch Food Network or binge watch all cooking shows on Netflix? I mean, if you just like to watch eating and whatever, go eat or watch eating, that's not it. Both end. Scriptural reflection, you know, how the Lord opened the scriptures for them as they walked along the road to Emmaus, but also how he was recognized when he broke bread. The community is the church. One of the fierce Reformation debates between Catholics and Protestants had to do with whether the Bible came first or the church came first. It is sort of the chicken or the egg argument. And the Protestants answered it was the Word of God that founded the church even when the Bible did not yet exist because the Word of God was contained sufficiently in the Bible, but before it was written, it was within God because it is the Word of God. Or as Michael Carr said, that one Word of God became enfleshed. All that God needed to speak to us, that one Word, was going to be found in this Jewish carpenter who was mostly unrecognized, mostly unpopular, And when he was dead, people thought, that's over now. But through that death and resurrection, a powerful movement, humanly speaking, that the world had yet to see, has just occurred. Thus the word became came before the church. Perhaps as a result, Protestant traditions had an unfortunate slippage of emphasizing individual Bible study without the corresponding emphasis on reading in communion. And you know, I'm so thankful that our church here celebrates the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Here's why. So when I talk to students, when I teach students, I often say this. You know, if you're not a good preacher, make sure you give, you offer the the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Why? Because people need to get something out of the service, right? That you, if you're not a good preacher, and I'm preaching to myself when I say this, by the way, just so that people need to get something out of, get something out of the worship service. That if you're not getting a great sermon, then at least they can come and receive the elements of bread and wine or grape juice, gluten-free or not. And through these elements and through this communion, what you are experiencing is the living God who has come before us, for us and for our salvation. Now, think about that. That God would care to do that and be that for you and, and for our salvation. Now, 
I realize that for many of us, when we hear this, it doesn't mean jack. Like, all right, whatever. Like, sure, that's what he did. But if you do, what you're doing basically is you're basically saying, that is not a stupendous, amazing story. I mean, why would you are amazed if the mayor of this town or, you know, the president of the United States or the governor is like, hey, I want to come and hang out with you a little bit. Can we do that? You'd be like, oh, that's great. Can we do that, please? Yet the Lord who has made everything, the Lord himself came to this world. He traveled mostly incognito. He was not recognized by many people. He was repudiated. His claims are repudiated. And even as we speak now, unless God works the miracle of warming your heart, giving you that holy heartburn, all of these scriptures will not mean anything. Therefore, the community is a community that is empowered by and encouraged by God himself, God the Holy Spirit. So whatever decisions we make, Whatever things we do, I pray that our community will become one that is going to seek the wisdom of God found in and led by scriptures as we actively depend on the Spirit of God to guide us through it all. So there was a 12th century Christian named Bernard of Chartres who said that we are standing on the shoulders of giants. And precisely because we are sitting on top of the shoulders of giants who have gone before us, we can see further and see better than they, not because we're better than they are, but because they carry us on their shoulders. So there's a sense of communion of saints from Cleopas till today, from this anonymous follower of Jesus till here in 21st century Nashville. We are all connected at this beautiful, as wonderful Puritan theologian John Owen says, he really, in his commentary in Hebrew says, look, there's a sense in which all the saints who have gone before us are your cheerleaders. As you're going through a difficult time, as you're going through tragedy, they're praying for epiphany. As you're going through a real difficult time, they're saying, you can do this. We have done it and don't give up yet because I am with you. And furthermore, God is with you. So that community, I don't know where you are in your life. Maybe you're in the moment of tragedy. Maybe you're in the moment of epiphany, but regardless, we're all in this community together. And I hope that you'll come to experience that community in tangible and small and big ways. Let's pray together.